God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, it is a, a lamp unto our feet. We thank you, Lord, that um, for, for just the boldness that is in your word. God, the, uh, the way that it takes complicated issues and provides a path for us to follow. Um, Lord, I pray as we look at this chapter and Lord, so many practical principles are, are in this passage. Lord, would you give us wisdom and discernment from your spirit about how to apply these principles? Lord, I pray that you'd give us a love and an understanding and grace towards others with whom we may disagree with. So Lord, would you guide us in these next couple of moments, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was 500 years ago this week that back in 1521, Martin Luther, uh, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, stood before the Pope at the Diet of Worms and was called to uh, take back, to recant his 95 Theses. His 95 Theses were centered on the authority of the scripture, salvation uh, through faith alone in Jesus by grace alone. And many of us are well aware of, uh, of this moment and the implications thereof and, and the effect that it has on us today. But as Martin Luther stood before the Pope, uh, he uttered these words about the conscience. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. I want you to understand this moment in a profoundly courageous stand for truth. I think Martin Luther demonstrates just how powerful the conscience can be. To understand this moment, Martin Luther's standing before the Pope, one of the most powerful individuals in the world at that time. He's asked to recant, and if he doesn't, the likely consequences was death for him. And yet Martin Luther, he obeys his conscience because it was shaped and it was aligned with God's word. I think the conscience, if it is shaped by the Bible, if it's aligned with God's word, becomes a really helpful tool toward maturity. But the conscience, if it is shaped, if it is aligned by other things, maybe sin or the influences of this world or even our own personal freedom, it can become a destructive tool, not only for that individual, but also for those around them. But how are we to think about the conscience? How would you define the conscience. What issues uh, are, are considered matters of the conscience and matters of personal preference? Is there a difference? Are all gray issues conscience issues? What's the relationship between conscience issues and Christian liberties and Christian rights? What responsibilities do, do you have towards those around you as it relates to matters of the conscience. So there's all kinds of questions related to the conscience, related to Christian liberty. And those are some of the same questions that actually the Corinthians were asking the apostle Paul some 2000 years ago. They actually wrote Paul a letter asking some of those same questions. Isn't it amazing? Isn't God's word amazing that those are some of the same questions that we wrestle with today? And yet when we come to 1 Corinthians 8, we, we find the apostle Paul starting to answer some of those questions. And yet one thing that we need to understand is that the issue at hand, 
as Paul is writing this letter, the issue at Corinth, just like many of the cities during this time period, is that idol worship was pervasive. We need to understand that before we start taking these principles and applying it to our time today. Idol worship was everywhere. In fact, the the default religious mindset had some sort of connection with idol worship. And so there were these temples pretty much everywhere in Corinth around some of the larger cities where idol worship took place. And one of the aspects of idol worship within these temples were kind of these cultic dinners where they would take really good meat and they would offer that up as a sacrifice to these idols as an act of worship. Okay, that's part of what's going on here. So you can imagine how some and perhaps even most of the Christians in Corinth were saved by Jesus out of that type of of religious uh, involvement with idol worship. And so naturally, the questions start to rise to the surface within this congregation. They were asking the questions, well, can we still attend these temple dinners? Can Can we still eat that kind of meat? Or if not, can we eat the meat that's then sold at the marketplace maybe later on that day or the very next day? Or what if you're attending a dinner by a friend and that same meat that was offered to the idols is now served before me? Can I eat the meat then? Those are some of the questions that Paul is answering uh, the Corinthians in chapter eight and chapter 10. And there were some in this church who had no problem not only eating the meat that was being sold at the marketplace, but they had no problem attending these temple dinners where idol worship was taking place. And then you had other people in this church that did have a problem with that, that was violating their conscience. And so this disagreement that you can see in chapter eight was just adding to the already disunity that we've been seeing throughout 1 Corinthians. Like this church, just like every church, was a beautiful mess. It was a beautiful, beautiful mess. So how does the Apostle Paul help them? How how would the Apostle Paul help us this morning think about issues related to the conscience? Well, I think he gives three encouraging truths. Number one, Paul is going to encourage the church at Corinth to pursue biblical love as the core of Christian maturity. If you look at verse one, Paul begins by quoting uh, uh, from the Corinthians what they were saying when they said, all of us possess knowledge. That's, That's what the Corinthians were saying to Paul. Now, Paul will address Uh, the kind of knowledge that they were claiming in a moment. But I love where Paul begins. I love what Paul first addresses. See, Paul's major concern, you gotta get this, Paul's major concern is their heart behind their argument, their heart behind their behavior, much more than who is right and who is wrong about idol worship. See, Paul's response in verses one through three cuts right to the heart of the issue by pointing out that for the Corinthians here, their emphasis was completely wrong, all right? And so what Paul does here in these first couple of verses is he contrasts love with knowledge and specifically how they result in two different things. 
that knowledge without love results in being puffed up. Love, though, results in being built up. Now, throughout these verses, I think there is a warning for the church. There's a warning even for us this morning that Paul in this chapter emphasizes knowledge. He emphasizes the ability to know. He says it 10 different times in this chapter alone. But the warning here has to do with having knowledge without love that is driving your behavior. That the warning here is predicating your conduct solely based on knowledge without love may lead you into greater sin. All right, this type of knowledge, Paul says, puffs you up. It fills you with pride. It fills you with even self-deception. And due to being puffed up with pride, the Corinthians here thought they knew more than what they really knew. That's what he says in verse two. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. It's one of the dangers of having a knowledge without love. But not only are you puffed up with pride and self-deception, but it can also lead to destroying others spiritually. Paul will address that in verse 11. And so the Corinthians here, they were incorrectly believing that the key to Christian maturity was just about knowledge and not love. And we can understand that because the church here at Corinth, they were the, the church of knowledge. Chapter one, verse five, Paul even gives thanks for the spirit giving them the spiritual gift of knowledge. But they thought that being spiritual and being mature was all about having the right kind of knowledge and being right. And so Paul makes it clear, I think in these first couple of verses that the core of Christian maturity is not just about knowledge, but it's also about love. In other words, the greatest evidence of someone growing spiritually is not about how much they know, but it's about how well they love. And specifically, how well they are loving people with whom they disagree with. See, true maturity is not just about having correct theology. It's not just about having the right kind of knowledge and, and, and the accumulation of data and facts. It's about how well you are biblically loving others, specifically those with whom you disagree with. Let me, let me press this in a little bit more. If I wanted to know how spiritually mature you were, I'm not only going to look at your theology. It's a great place to start, but I'm not only going to look at what you know. I want to know how well you love people with whom you disagree with. I want to know how well you love, how well you talk about people who vote politically differently than you do. I want to know how well you love, how well you talk about people who have a different stance on the vaccine than you do. I want to know how well you love, how well you talk about people who have a different view on education for children different parenting strategies, different discipline strategies, a different position on wearing the mask or COVID-19 or alcohol, or you go down the list of what might be considered conscience issues. For me to look at your spiritual maturity, I want to know how well you are loving, how well you talk about those people that you find yourself on the opposite end of the table with. 
See, for Paul, Paul would say, you might have the correct knowledge. You might have even the right position on those matters, but if you are not loving others well, it is a puffed up, prideful knowledge. And I think some people would rather be right. Some people would rather make sure that other people know that they are right, rather than to sacrificially love others and build them up. See, love is the core of Christian maturity. Now, why does Paul begin the argument this way? Well, why not just dive into the issues and just say, this person's right, this person's wrong, settle the issue, right? That, in some ways, that almost feels like that would be easier. But Paul is much more concerned with the heart than who is right and who is wrong on the issue here of eating meat sacrificed to idols. See, Paul is going to dedicate much of chapter 13, kind of the love chapter on this point, but he wants us to understand Christian maturity is not just about head knowledge, which so often leads to pride, but it is the way of biblical love. Now, this of course does not mean that knowledge and correct theology are unimportant or trivial, of course not. But so often, having the right theology, having the correct knowledge tends to lead people to use it as a club rather than a warm blanket. Correct theology leads to genuine love. Now, being reminded of that, I think, is, is helpful but Paul adds a second truth that we need to be reminded of this morning. In verses four through six, Paul shows us, and I think he even like demonstrates for us how important it is to link orthodoxy, which is right doctrine, right thinking, with orthopraxy, which is right living. And specifically here, Paul's going to show us that, yes, theology, orthodoxy matters, and it matters a whole lot, but you need to connect it to how you're living and specifically here, how you are treating others with whom you disagree with. If you look at verse four, Paul starts to get into the issue of food being sacrificed to idols and the issue of idolatry behind that. And, and if you look at verses four and five, you can see the tension in this church that for Paul, Paul's gonna say, look, this is just meat. There's only one true living God, right? These idols, these other lowercase g gods, they do not really exist, right? They're not, they're not really real. And yet for the worshipers, there is kind of this subjective reality to these idols and to these lowercase g's. So some of these people who are coming out of that tradition, who are now part of this church, there's a tension here. And so Paul starts to lean into that, but notice what Paul does. Paul does not tell them, okay, some of you think these idols are real. Some of you don't think that they're real. It's okay, just love each other. Just live in harmony. Just forget about it. That's not what he does. Paul in verse six in particular, reminds them of the importance of correct theology, but how to link that with how to think about God, how to think about other people, and how to think about yourself. And he, what he does here is he exhorts both camps, people who are the strong and people who are the weak. 
And I love verse six. Verse six, I so often have kind of skipped over in this passage as if this is kind of a, a random theological insertion by Paul, but this is not random. This is almost foundational to what Paul is doing here. I think verse six is one of the deepest, most beautiful statements about God in all of 1 Corinthians. And I want you to notice what he does here. Paul emphasizes the fact that God is one. There is one God, there is one Lord, as opposed to many gods or many idols. Okay, but not only that, he also highlights God as the creator of all things. God is the agent of all creation, the source of all creation, and the goal of all creation. The reason why we exist, creation exists, is for God. Now, this is not random theology that he's inserting here. What Paul is doing is he is correcting those who are weak in conscience, who believe that maybe these idols are real. He's correcting them, but he's also reminding us of the bigness of God. He's reminding us that God is the creator of all things and we exist for him. And I think there is something so powerful about being reminded of verse six of these truths that you and I, we exist for God. God does not exist for us because it reminds us that life is not about me. Life is not about my freedoms. Life is not about my personal rights and my personal privileges within the Christian life. Life is first and foremost about God and glorifying him and allowing that reality to shape how I treat other people. See, something, I think something very wrong happens when we fail to remember the truth about God in verse six. When we start to forget that life is about God, what you and I tend to do with our personal rights and our privileges and our freedoms is we start to go like this to them. We start to tightly move our hands around them and we white knuckle them and we, and we start to move from thinking life's about God, life is about how to love others, life is about how to use my rights and freedoms for them and we start to go like this and we move to thinking what's best for me? What do I want? We move from, from thinking life's about God to what's in it for me? Or how do I use these rights that best serves me? We start to move from asking questions like should I or ought I or how might this impact others to then asking questions of, can I? And if I can, I will, because that's my right. And I think remembering verse six is so important to loosen our grip around our rights, around our freedom, to be reminded life is about God and loving the people around me. Right, it's very foundational as we think about this topic of Christian liberty and as we think about issues related to the conscience. Now, we need to answer the question though, how should we use our personal rights? How should we use our freedoms? How do we think about issues related to the conscience? And I think there are so many words 
and concepts in verses seven through 13 that need defining, that, that need to be unpacked, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna walk through verses seven through 13, and I'm going to ask and answer what I think are four of the most important questions in these verses, okay? So as far as how to use personal rights and build others up, I think the first question from verse seven is what is the conscience? All right, let me read verse seven. It says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. All right, we've talked about the conscience a lot this morning. Paul here talks about it in verse seven as it being possible to have a weak conscience. And so what's implied there is you can have a strong conscience, but not only that, you can have a conscience that can actually be defiled, okay? So, so what is the conscience? Here's just a basic definition, is that the conscience is your personal sense of what is right and wrong, all right? It, it's kind of your, uh, your inner moral referee or umpire that's evaluating what is right and what is wrong. Okay, that's just a basic definition, but let me just add some things on top of that that I think are important in terms of the conscience. First, your conscience is not above God's word. Your conscience, if it is a, a helpful tool, it is leading you towards obeying what God's word has to say and not going against it. In other words, if you've got God's word telling you to do this, your conscience telling you to do that, you always pick God's word in that scenario, all right? Not only that, your conscience is personal, okay? It's your conscience, and your conscience might be different than someone else's conscience. And so avoid imposing your conscience or your personal convictions on a matter on someone else. Avoid binding someone else's conscience. That leads to another important factor about the conscience is to avoid judging others or looking down upon others who might have a different view than you do on matters related to the conscience. All right, let me keep going here. Let me add on, on, on what we've laid before us about the conscience is that the conscience can change. Okay, this is really important. The conscience can grow and develop for the better or it can grow for the worse. First Timothy chapter one, verse five, Paul says, that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we aim for a good conscience, but no one's conscience is perfect. Everyone's conscience needs further development, further alignment with God's word. There's always this gap between what you know the Bible is saying and how you're actually living your life because of sin. Now, what closes that gap, the Lord gives us a helpful tool, is a conscience that is aligned with God's word, that's becoming more and more adjusted with what God's word actually says. Your conscience becomes a helpful tool, but your conscience can actually change for the worse, and it can actually become unhelpful, I think, in two ways. Number one, your conscience can take something that is sinful, something that is clearly sinful, and it can say that it's not sinful, 
Okay, now when that happens, the Bible talks about how your conscience has become seared, right? Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, going against the scriptures time and time, time again, your conscience will eventually become calloused. You will eventually have a deadened conscience that is not helpful at all, at the very least. And yet what tends to happen with even Christians who are living in continual sin, who are living perhaps in habitual sin, their consciences actually will lead them towards looking at something that is sinful and convincing themselves that it's not sinful. And look, this is where I am very concerned as a pastor, that there are some who know God's word. There are some who might even, you know, come to church every single week, but they have a, a pet sin. They have some sort of, uh, of immorality in their life and they've justified it by coming to that sin time and time again to the point where their consciences are not just dead, but their consciences are somehow convincing them that that sinful deed, that sinful act is actually not sinful at all. You can have a conscience that's so seared where you can look at sexual sin or gossip or whatever sin it is, and your conscience can actually lead you to, to living a life that's more relaxed around participating in that sin. That is a dangerous place to be. And it tends to be with people who are living in isolation from other believers, who are stiff arming, having accountability in their lives, who are stiff arming other believers speaking truth into their lives, be on guard, all right? But secondly, okay, not as extreme, but the conscience can actually become unhelpful where it's so weak that there needs further development. All right, now Paul is going to speak into those who have a weak conscience in this passage, those who believe that eating meat is sinful when Paul says it's not. All right, so that's the second way that I think a conscience needs to be further developed. When something's not sinful, the Bible does not say it is, but the conscience says it's not right to do. The weak conscience is, is overly sensitive and is restrictive. Paul would say that conscience needs further alignment with God's word, all right? Now, another aspect of the conscience, we're just gonna get deeper and deeper here, that I think is really helpful is that the conscience pertains to issues of morality, not personal preferences, the conscience, when you look at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, Romans 15, Paul is dealing with a group of people, those who are weak in conscience, who absolutely believe that the issue of hand, whether it's eating a meat sacrificed to idols, whether it's eating meat compared to vegetables, is truly a sin for them. This is not a person, this isn't Doritos or Fritos, right? This isn't like, but this is a, an issue related to sin, related to morality here. And the weaker conscience truly believes that doing that is a sin to them, all right? So the Bible does not use the conscience for non-sin issues. 
When you start to do that, you begin to weaponize your conscience related to personal uh, preferences. For example, this is just gonna be a, a very kind of silly illustration, but if I wore red shoes while preaching, um, that, that's just a, a, an issue in and of itself. But if I did, all right, just go with me here. Um, and, and you said, Pastor, that bothers me that you wear red shoes when you preach. My conscience cannot allow myself to sit under your preaching. All right, if you said that to me, I would very lovingly listen to you. I would say, I am so sorry that you feel that way, but let's just be real here. Let's be straight about what the Bible says about God. That's not a conscience issue. That is an issue of preference, which would lead us down a different discussion, all right? Or take the, the issue of wearing a face mask, all right? Everybody starts to lean in for a moment. Now, some would say that wearing a face mask is an issue of the conscience, but it's not that easy. See, for one, up until recently, we were dealing with the issue of submitting to authorities, governing authorities from Romans 13, up until really the last few weeks. But moving past there, if you are laying before someone else that this is an issue of the conscience, you have to explain how wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is a sin issue, is an issue of morality, which I find very difficult to do. It might be an issue of, is it, is it effective or is it ineffective? Is it helpful or is it unhelpful? Is it an inconvenience or is it, a, or is it convenient? We can go there, but to get to the place where you would say wearing a face mask or not wearing a face mask is a sin issue, I think is challenging. But if you do that, and you move past that and you answer that question, then you have to answer the question, who is the weak and who is the strong? Which I think is very complicated. <laughs> and this is part of the discussion that we've been having for almost a year now. And this is a discussion that we're gonna have tonight at uh, the forum. Because answering the weak and the strong, if this is a conscience issue, is going to direct you how you ought to act. And we'll talk more about that tonight. But the point is, is to avoid taking a preference issue that's not a sin issue, not an issue of morality, and making it a conscience issue, all right? We'll move on here. Another, another issue related to the, con that was a tease for you to come back tonight, because we'll answer that at the forum. The, another thing about the conscience, and I just want you guys to know, we're going to go over our time this morning in the sermon, I, and if you need to leave, you can leave if that's an issue of conscience for you. Um, <laughs> But the next thing about the conscience that you need to know is you need to obey your conscience. You need to obey your conscience. You are sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and yet you refuse to listen to it. It's really important. But to avoid this from becoming subjective, where it's right for you, it's right for me, and we can just not worry about it, I think Pastor Mark Dever says that conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong, right? In other words, what God declares wrong and sinful is always wrong and sinful, like adultery, right? That's not a conscience issue. That's not up for debate. That's clearly wrong and sinful, but your conscience can take something that is acceptable, that is okay, that is right, and because your conscience isn't convinced can lead you not to do X, Y, and Z. And you need to obey your conscience. The example of alcohol might be applicable here, where the Bible 
does not explicitly say for you to avoid drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol is a sin. It does say that drinking, getting drunk on alcohol is a sin, but drinking it in moderation, it's not a sin. But for you, uh, you might have a history of drunkenness or you might have a, uh, a tendency towards becoming addicted to certain things and your conscience will not allow you to take even one drink of alcohol. That's where your conscience is. You need to obey your conscience. There's all kinds of issues and questions we're even gonna tackle tonight. We're gonna attempt to tackle tonight. Uh, and, uh, but this is not an easy topic. This is why we talk about these issues with other believers, with even maybe even leaders of the church and not just isolated between you and maybe one other person. All right, now we gotta move on here. We got uh, three other questions to answer. The second question is who are the weak and who are the strong in this passage? All right, verse seven, Paul mentions those who are weak in conscience. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 8, for the weak, they believe that attending these pagan temple dinners and eating the meat was wrong. Okay, so for the weak, they had maybe an, an intellectual conviction that there's only one true living God, but it had not fully assimilated down to governing their heart. Because Paul will say, it's just meat. But for the weak, it was idolatry. Their conscience needed more alignment with God's word. But Paul will even say in verses 10 and 11, that for the weak, going to those temple dinners, eating the meat there, would destroy their conscience, would lead them back to idolatry. And I wanna be clear here, the problem with those who are weak in conscience is not that they're offended by the freedoms of the strong. That's not the issue here. The issue here is that the weak, their consciences are being built up in such a way that it's actually leading them into sin. That's the issue at hand here. And for the strong, at least in this passage, the strong are those whose consciences allow them to enjoy more liberty and more freedom than those who are the weak. The strong have a greater knowledge, they have a greater understanding. But notice here in this passage, Paul warns the strong not to urge the weak, not to convince them, not to drag them into something that violates their conscience. Paul wants for the strong to have their love for others match their knowledge and even govern their knowledge. But also for the weak though, the weak aren't just let off the hook, where if you're weak in conscience, you can just kind of sit back. Paul wants those who are weak in conscience to have a responsibility to grow their conscience, to become more aligned with what the Bible says. All right, so that, those are the strong, those are the weak. Now, third question here is what are rights and how should we use them? All right, verse nine, Paul says, but take care that this right of yours, talking to the strong, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on rights and, and liberties. We're gonna talk more about that tonight at the forum. But the right here, Paul is referring to, belongs to the strong in conscience, who has the freedom to eat meat. They have a, a freedom to participate in things that the Bible does not say is sinful than those who are weak in conscience. But notice, Paul's counsel to the strong and how to use their freedoms is to allow love to govern their actions, that our rights are never truly exercised in isolation. 
our rights and our freedoms because we're in community, because we're part of the church, because we, we do life with other people, they are shared privileges and freedoms that impact other people. And so Paul warns the strong in conscience in verse 11 and says, you valuing your freedom and your rights above love for the weak may result in them being destroyed spiritually. That that verse 11 is a strong exhortation to the strong, strong conscience. But it raises the question, how tightly do you and I hold on to our rights and our freedoms? And how do you know, right? Here's maybe a a quote by one of the commentators that I've been going through in 1 Corinthians, Stephen Um. He says, if nervousness, and I might even say if resistance, but if, if nervousness sets in when an individual thinks about freedoms that he might need to give up for the common good, that is a clear indication that he is enslaved by his entitlements. In other words, having this tight clench on your freedoms and your rights and refusing to give them up for the good of the whole reveals not only a lack of love for other people, but may in fact reveal idolatry around those rights and those freedoms. See, there's a responsibility to use our freedom in a way that builds others up, that doesn't lead them into sin and thus become a stumbling block. Now, the stumbling block in verse nine, again, it's not about offending people. It's not about the strong. It's about urging them to participate in something that is sinful that their conscience cannot allow for them. And Paul says, this is, and this is why Paul says, you're sinning against Christ when you abuse your rights and your freedoms because a lack of care for the bride of Christ is a lack of care for Christ. For the strong in conscience here, the, their arrogance, their insensitivity, which would destroy a brother in the name of knowledge and freedom, Paul is contrasting with the sacrificial love and death of Jesus. What a challenge. What a challenge to think about the son of God, Jesus, who gave up his rights freely to come and live a life here, exposed to everything that we're exposed in order to love us such a challenge to apply it to Jesus. Here's Gordon Fee, my favorite commentator on 1 Corinthians. He says, for the Corinthians, knowledge means rights to act in freedom. Thus, for them, freedom became the highest good since it led to the exaltation of the individual. But for Paul, the opposite prevails. Love means the free giving up of one's rights for the sake of others and life together in the community is the aim of salvation. Love, that is care for a brother, determines Christian ethical life, not freedom. Look, this is what drove the Apostle Paul to conclude in verse 13. He says, if eating meat causes someone else to stumble, I will give up eating meat. He is willing to give up his rights, his freedoms to love others. Now, before we close with the fourth question, and we've talked a lot about the conscience, we've talked a lot about different issues related. Here's a helpful graph as kind of a summary here. This is by Vaughn Roberts, 
who I think basically takes all that we've said here in 1 Corinthians 8 and then even 1 Corinthians 10 of do it all for the glory of God, which we'll get to in a couple uh, of weeks here, and basically boils it down to these steps when you're thinking about conscience issues. So question number one, you always have to start with, does the Bible allow it? Always have to start there, right? We, we need to emphasize that kind of language all the more. What does the Bible say? Make that a regular rhythm in your life, in your home. What does the Bible say, right? Start there. If, if it's no, don't do it. Very easy. Yes. Second question is, does my conscience allow it? And if no, don't do it. Remember, obey your conscience. But if yes, then you get into the sphere of Christian liberty and right and freedom. And I think these three questions that Vaughn Roberts uh, poses are really, really helpful. Number one is what's really the impact on Christians around me, right? Trying to emphasize love over knowledge. And then the second question what effect does this have on non-believers, on those who aren't Christians? Am I participating in a right that would negatively impact someone being converted to becoming a Christian, right? It's a really important question we need to think through. And then thirdly, what's the effect on my own spiritual life? Something may be right to do. You might be allowed to do it biblically, but is it wise versus being unwise? That's a really important question. All right, so hopefully that summary is, is helpful even as we transition to the forum uh, here this evening. But let me close with the fourth question that I think is very practical here. And maybe, and maybe we're a little bit shy or embarrassed to even ask this question, but how do you cleanse your conscience? Right? What happens when your conscience becomes seared? What happens when your conscience is so dirty, it's so impacted by the sin in your life, it's not even helpful anymore. Well, this is where I think the promises of God's word and just reminding yourself of what Jesus has done for you on behalf of you is so practical and so important. The Bible does say that we all have sinned. The Bible clearly lays out for us that all of us have rebelled against God and therefore all of us have consciences that have been stained by sin in some way. And yet God does not leave us to ourselves. God has this amazing rescue plan to not only save us from our sins, but also to help cleanse our consciences. See, the Bible explains how God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in the place of sinners, to, to pay for our sins, to take our penalty, and to absorb all of the wrath of God that you and I should have endured for our wrongdoing. He took our place. He rose again three days later. And now all who put their faith in Jesus, not in themselves, all who put their trust in Jesus, repent of their sins, God takes their dirty, filthy rags of unrighteousness and exchanges them for the perfect, righteous, blameless clothes of Christ's righteousness. And now he, he clothes you, he robes you in Jesus, and now you have salvation, now you have forgiveness, and now you are accepted before God forever and ever. 1 John 1, 9 declares, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just to not only forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I wanna remind you, church, that your salvation, your forgiveness is dependent on the perfect faithfulness of our God. And yet not only that, but the ability to be cleansed is dependent on the faithfulness and the justice of our God. That yes, you can be forgiven. Yes, you can have eternal life, but your conscience can also be cleansed. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest Jesus over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus made a way not only for you to have salvation, but for your conscience to be cleansed and cleaned in him. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and Oh God, we praise you for your word again. We thank you for the clarity we find in here. And yet, Lord, there are hard, hard things to apply to our lives. There are difficult things. And honestly, Lord, there are things that aren't clear, that we need your wisdom, we need your direction, we need your grace. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a humility, that you would fill us with the type of love that the Apostle Paul challenges us with, Lord, that you would help us not only to think biblically, but to think and, and live lives of love towards others. God, help us to be sensitive to our conscience. We thank you for the gift that it is. Help us to be good stewards of it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.